Turn, if you would, this morning to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is where we're going to be. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we come to you this morning. It is good to be in your house today. I pray that you'd bless this time in your word. I pray that you'd help us to give attention to it. I pray that you'd help us to make personal application in our lives as it relates to what we're about to hear. God, I pray that we'd be challenged by it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I think most of you know I'm not much of a joke teller. I don't tell many jokes from the pulpit because I recognize that I'm not the greatest teller of jokes. And typically when I try to be funny, it doesn't go over well. So I'm going to share a joke with you this morning, though, that is not meant to be funny necessarily, but it's meant to try to prove a point. It's a, it's a joke or a story that I heard several years ago, and uh, maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. But it deals with a preacher, all right, who had moved to a new church, and upon arriving uh, at this new church, it was his first Sunday there, he got up and he preached before the people, Decent message, a good message, whatever you'd like to call it, but he got done preaching. The people were dismissed, came back the next week, next Sunday morning. He preached the message that he had preached the week for the week prior, the week before, almost the exact same message. And a couple of people thought that was strange, but they didn't say anything. So the next week rolled around. He stood before the people and he preached the exact same sermon he had preached the last two weeks. So after the service, a couple of people came to him and said, Pastor, why is it that you've preached now the exact same message the last three weeks? And his response was this, when we start doing that message, we'll move on to a different one. Now that's not funny, but it proves a point, doesn't it? That just because we've heard something doesn't mean we're doing it. Just because we hear it and just because we say amen and just because we act like, oh yeah, we're all in support of that one, doesn't mean we're really applying it to our lives the way that we ought. And I say that for this reason. This morning, we're not going to deal with the exact same text. We're not going to deal with an exact same sermon that I've preached in recent weeks. But we're going to deal with a thought or a theme that has been dealt with somewhat repeatedly in the last few weeks. And you may leave here this morning and say, why did he preach that again? Well, it's one of those things that maybe when we get it, we can move on. And I don't feel as though I'm the one searching these passages out. I believe the Lord is bringing us to these passages, and I think that there's purpose for this. I think there is reason that we are here. And so I think it would behoove us to listen, and as I talked about in Sunday school this morning, to not just assume that someone else needs this, but to try to make it personal. How could I use this? What could I get from this And then when we leave here this morning, to not let it quickly leave our minds and to leave our memories, but to let this be something that we focus on and give attention to throughout the days and weeks to come. So that in mind, I want us to think about something that I know would not be true of everyone. I know that not everybody in this room is a car person. Some of you do not care about cars at all. You've got a couple of prerequisites. Is it clean and does it run? And if it is clean and if it runs, then you're happy with it. And some of you only have one prerequisite. Does it run? You don't care if it's clean or not. It may look like a pigsty in the side and, you know, you just, you don't care. But so long as it runs and gets you from point A to point B, you're okay with that. And I understand that. But I want us to think about something this morning as it relates to car manufacturers. And that is this. 
is that some manufacturers will produce a couple of different lines of vehicles. They have this particular model that they sell and another kind of model that they sell. And to illustrate what I'm talking about, this morning I want to talk about Fords and Lincolns. Okay, Fords and Lincolns. Now I promise you there's a point to this, so just stay with me, okay? I drive a Ford Expedition. It's an SUV, sport utility vehicle, and I drive a pretty simple SUV. It's not very loaded up with bells and whistles. It's got just the basics, just your simple approach to driving a car. But there are different levels of expeditions that you can buy with more options available to them, and they can get pretty fancy. So if you were to go out and you were to buy the top-of-the-line Ford Expedition, you might get leather, you might get a sunroof, you might get a navigation system, you might get heated seats or cooled seats or all these different things. In the end, it's going to be a pretty sharp ride. It's going to be a pretty fancy ride that you get to enjoy. So that is one line that comes off the assembly line from a Ford manufacturing plant. But there is also this thing called a Lincoln Navigator. A Lincoln Navigator. It's on the same chassis as a Ford Expedition. Uh, it's got the same engine. It's going to have the same transmission in it. But what it's going to have is all that same equipment on the inside. They're just going to call that standard equipment. It just comes standard on that particular car, but it'll have the leather seats, the heated seats, the cooled seats, the navigation system, the sunroof, and all these different things. And so if you were to park a Ford Expedition with all those options added to them and a Lincoln Navigator beside each other, though it was standard equipment, again, if you're not a car person, here's what you might say. You might say, well, what's the difference? They look so much alike. They are so similar to one another. And the truth be told is there's really not that much of a difference besides some emblems and maybe a few markings and things of that nature. But really what you have is two identical vehicles because they've come off the same assembly line and there are not great variations between what they offer and what they provide to the consumer, the one who is driving it. Now, if we'll hold on to that for a few moments, this morning I want us to think about the book of Philippians. Some of you will know what I'm about to mention. Some of you are aware of this, but some of you may not be, so let me just kind of give us some introduction. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to some believers in Philippi. And I know that we know this, that the Apostle Paul had the ability, because of his knowledge and his understanding, he had the ability to go deep in the ranks or in the realm of theology and doctrine. You read some of what the Apostle Paul wrote. It is very deep. It is very profound. You have to study. You have to give yourself to really uh, uh, understand it. You, you don't just casually read it, walk away from it, and say, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. There are times that the Apostle Paul was extremely deep and profound in the words and the thoughts that he communicated. And yet many times when the Apostle Paul wrote, it is very simple, it is very practical, it is very easy to understand, because it seems to be that the desire of the Apostle Paul was never to try to impress people with his knowledge or to simply make people smarter by way of doctrine. He wanted to help them in a practical sense in ways that would really change how they lived the Christian life. And so a lot of what the Apostle Paul wrote is just very simple, it is very practical, it is easy to be understood, and yet it is amazing how many times we stumble over it, how we just don't get it in the way that we ought. And so here is Paul writing to a group of believers in the city of Philippi. 
This church that he is writing to, it would be what we might refer to as a fairly solid church. They didn't have the problems like the church in Corinth had. So this is a church that's fairly solid. The believers are fairly solid. But it did not mean that they were not without their average daily run-of-the-mill kind of problems. These were people just like anyone else, so they had issues like everyone else had issues. And so what they were going to be told by the Apostle Paul is something that you and I can benefit from because we are fairly common, pretty average, run-of-the-mill type people, are we not? And we have our own issues, and we have our own things that we deal with and, and our own circumstances. And so I think this morning's message will be a real help. Again, if we're willing to apply it and ask ourselves, what do I need to get from this message? So I'd like us to start this morning by looking in chapter 2 of Philippians. Chapter 2, and I want us to look toward the middle of the verse of 15. I want us to look toward the middle of verse number 15. And here's what Paul says in the middle of verse 15, jumping into this segment and portion of Scripture. He says, in the midst of of a crooked and perverse nation. In the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Whenever I read those words, I have a basic understanding of what the Apostle Paul was communicating and what he was conveying in that statement. But what he was saying to the believers of Philippi in that particular statement is this, is that they were living in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. So what does it mean whenever he says that they were living in a crooked nation? Well, the word crooked means this. It means to be wicked, which would mean or carry with the idea, carry the idea with it of being ungodly. So it was a wicked nation. It was a wicked world that they were a part of. It was an ungodly nation and an ungodly world that they were a part of. But that word crooked also means this. It means to be surly. To be surly. Now that's not a word I use very often. In fact, I don't remember ever using it correctly. All right, The word surly, it's a word that I don't use. Probably most of you don't use the word very often. What does this word surly mean? It means this. To be sullen or sour. It means to be unfriendly or unpleasant. It's the idea of one who doesn't smile. Think about that. This crooked nation that they were a part of, it means to be wicked, it means to be ungodly, it means to be surly, which means people are sullen or sour or unfriendly. They are unpleasant. They don't smile. He said, that's the kind of nation that you're living in. Those are the kind of people that you live amongst. He also said, not only is it a crooked nation, he said that it is a perverse nation. He said it is a perverse nation, so what does that mean? It means this, that it is distorted, that it is corrupt. It means that the thinking doesn't make sense, that the logic doesn't make sense, that the living doesn't make sense, the mindset doesn't make sense. It's just crooked, it's distorted, it's perverted, it's weird. So think about this. Here is Paul writing to believers in Philippi of the culture that they're living in, of the society that they're living in, and he says you are living in the midst of a wicked, ungodly nation where the people are sour, they're sullen, they're unfriendly, they don't smile, their way of thinking is messed up, their way of living is messed up, their whole mindset and their whole approach to life is messed up. He said, that is the kind of world you are living in. So let me ask us, 
If we didn't know that the Apostle Paul had written this some 2,000 years ago, how many of us might think that that was a spiritual commentary on the culture that we're a part of today? It is very much a similar commentary of the culture that you and I are living in. We are living in an ungodly time. We are living in an ungodly day. There is no disputing that. There is no denying that. If you have any measure of honesty about yourself, there is no denying that we are living in an ungodly day. And I would say this, that we are living in a surly day. We are living in a day where people are, people are sullen, where people are sour, where people are unfriendly, where people are unpleasant to deal with, where people don't smile a whole lot. That's the kind of world we're living in. And then we are living in a perverted nation. We are living in a perverted land where the thinking and the logic and the mindset of people simply does not make sense anymore. You listen to people talk, you listen to people express their thoughts and their ideas and their positions and their beliefs and their convictions. And if you are like me, you listen to this and over and over again you are asking yourself, how do people come to these types of conclusions? What would make these people think these things? What would make people assume that this is a good way of thinking, a good mindset, a good logic to live their lives by? We are living in a nation that sounds very similar to what Paul was living in and to whom Paul was writing to, that they were living in a crooked and perverse nation. So if you finish up verse number 15, he says this, "...whom ye shine, or among whom ye shine, as lights in the world." among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Well, what does that mean? Well, if they shone as lights in the world, what does that mean to suggest? It, it seems to suggest this, that they were living in a dark world. That the world was not filled with light, but rather it was a dark environment, and that makes sense if it is crooked and perverse, if it is surly and ungodly. It makes sense that that would be described or that their nation would be defined as a dark world, and Paul said to them that it was in that world that they were among that they were supposed to shine as lights. It's kind of like what Jesus Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Right? Okay, so you've got the Apostle Paul saying to the believers there in Philippi, you are living in a crooked and perverse nation, and it is in this nation that you have been called upon to be light to the lost world that you're a part of. Now, I want us to get this, okay, because this is important. Again, nothing has changed in the last 2,000 years. If you and I are living in a crooked and perverse nation, if you and I are living in times where ungodliness exists, where the surly attitudes are present, if you and I are living amongst people who have distorted, twisted, perverted views and mindset and logic and, and, and approach to life, then nothing has changed with our responsibility. You and I are still called to be light to this dark world that we are amongst and that we live amongst. It is my responsibility to be light. It is your responsibility to be light. It is not just a few people's responsibility to be light. Everyone who is a child of God is called to be light in this dark world we're a part of. We're supposed to be light at work. We're supposed to be light with our family. We're supposed to be light with our neighbors. We're supposed to be light with the stranger that we come into contact with. You and I are called to be light. You and I are never supposed to take that candle and place it under the bushel. No, we're supposed to let our light shine. Amen. 
The truth of that little child's song is so simple and yet so profound. We are the light of the world and we have to let the light shine. We cannot afford to put it under a bushel and not let men and women see the light in our lives that they desperately need. So in chapter 2, verse number 15... It moves on, obviously, into verse number 16, explaining what they need by way of light. He said, holding forth the word of life. Holding forth the word of life. So what does that seem to suggest? Well, it seems to suggest this, that what the lost world needs in the midst of their darkness by way of light is the Word of God which brings life. Now understand this, because we are becoming more and more brainwashed in our society. The Apostle Paul was clear with them that what their generation and what their society and their nation needed was the Word of God. That is what they were in desperate need of. Understand, please, they were not in need of more education. You know, if we'll just come up with another program, if we'll just teach them something else, then they'll have the light that they need. And if we'll just educate them, then that will take care of the problems that that afflict our society. Paul would have said, no, 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 what they need is they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need the word of God. That is the light that they need in their lives. If somebody had come to the Apostle Paul in their day and said, well, you know, what we really need is this, is we need more funding. We need more funding. We need more programs. And what we need to do is we need to throw more money at the problem. You know what the Apostle Paul would have said? He would have said, money is not the issue. A lack of funding is not what has caused the darkness in the nation that we're a part of. That was not the issue. It was not a lack of education. It was not a lack of resources. It was not a lack of programs. It was not a lack of funding. What Paul said to them was this, is they need the gospel. They need the word of life. They need to hear the truth of God's word. That is what your light is supposed to be in the midst of this darkness. So I want us to hear this because, again, as I just said, we are getting more and more brainwashed the further along we go as a society. Here is what so many people think, that if we'll just throw money at a problem, surely at some point that will fix it. You know, we've got all these problems plaguing society. We've got all these issues that we're wrestling with and facing and, and struggling with. What do we need to do? We just need more funding from government. Friends, that is not what our nation needs. A lack of funding is not our problem. Well, we just need to educate our children better. Listen, we don't need the government educating our children any more than they already are, I can assure you. Our teachers need to teach reading and writing and arithmetic, the basics of education. They really don't need to be teaching theology or sociology or anything of that nature. They don't need to be teaching philosophy. Most of them don't even need to be teaching science because of the perspective they come from. I'm just saying education is not the answer to society's problems today. 
But yet we are living in a world that wants to put everything off on education. We want to put everything off on funding. And we are living in a society that expects government to step up and to fix all of our problems. And friends, government will never be the solution to our problems. In fact, more times than not, just step out on a limb and say this, more times than not, one of the biggest problems our culture is dealing with is the government who is supposed to be watching out for us. Could we please give attention to this? Our world does not need more education. Our world does not need more funding. We don't need another program. We don't need another campaign. We don't need more athletes and actors telling us how to live. What our society needs is a good dose of the Word of life, the Word of God, from whom? The children of God. That's what our society needs. So Paul said, we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. I would say to the Apostle Paul, hey, so do we. And he said, whom ye shine as lights in the world. And I would say, it's what we're supposed to be doing. And what do they need? They need the Word of God. It's what they, the lost world, needs more than anything. So in verse number 15, to try to tie this together, notice what he said next, or first, but we're looking at it next. Notice what he said. He said that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. What does it mean then to be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke? It means this, to live above reproach. To live above reproach. Now, does that mean that a person has to be perfect, that a person has to be sinless? Well, of course not, because you and I will never reach that status this side of heaven. Something else we talked about in Sunday school this morning. Some of you are getting a double dose of it, all right? You and I will never be perfect. You and I will never be sinless. But here is what the Apostle Paul said they should be striving for, was to be living in such a way that they would be above reproach, to the people that they were striving to be the light to in relation to the Word of God. See, Paul says you're living in a crooked, ungodly, surly world. You live amongst people who are ungodly. You live amongst people who are unfriendly. You live amongst people who are unpleasant to be around. They don't even like to smile for the most part. They have people, or you live around people who have twisted, distorted logic and a mindset. He said, now listen, if you're going to be light to them, and if you're going to show them the life of God's Word, if that's what you're going to do to them, then you've got to be above reproach. You've got to be. The nature of the messenger matters. There's got to be consistency between the message and the one giving the message. So see, if if someone, Paul says, is lost and, and they are in the darkness because of the world that they're a part of, then what you as a believer who is light needs to be You need to be above reproach for what reason? So that there might be some credibility to the message that you're presenting. So are we seeing how all this is tying together? All right. We should be able to see how it's tying together. But I find this interesting. 
This is not the total and complete element of being above reproach. I understand this, and I trust you understand this, but I find this interesting, that there is no way to deny the connection between verse 14 to 15 and 16. Remember who he's writing to. He's, real, he's writing to believers, right? He's writing to believers about everyday common issues that would have been issues amongst the run-of-the-mill average believer. He says in verse number 14, Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. What does it mean to murmur? It means this. To gripe, to complain, and to grumble. Now do what? Do all things without murmuring, griping, complaining, and grumbling. You know what that seems to indicate? It seems to indicate that Christians some 2,000 years ago had a tendency to sometimes gripe, grumble, and complain about certain elements of their lives. What might they gripe about? Now, they might gripe about their job. They might gripe about their community. They might gripe about their spouse. They might gripe about their family. They might gripe about their kids. They might gripe about their church. They might gripe about the school system. I don't know what it was they would have griped about, but it seems to indicate that people back then had a tendency to sometimes gripe, grumble, and complain. And you know what Paul said? Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't gripe, grumble, and complain. Do all things without murmuring. And then he said, and disputings. What does it mean to dispute? It means this, to be of an argumentative spirit. To be of an argumentative spirit, which means this, you have to be right. It doesn't matter what it is, you have to be right. So if this person says this and you don't agree with it, you can't just sit there and let them say whatever it is they said. No, you've got to jump in there and you've got to dispute it. You've got to be argumentative by way of your spirit. So if your husband says this and you think your husband's wrong, you don't let your husband just sit there and think he's right. No, you've got to jump in there and correct him and let him know he was wrong, you moron. At the same time, it's, you know, your wife says something and you don't remember it the same way that your wife remembers it. And so rather than just sitting, her there, sitting there thinking, well, we remember it different. No, you've got to jump in. You've got to say, no, it wasn't 23 years ago. It was 24 years ago. Well, we're off by a year. Is it really worth disputing? No, it's not really worth disputing. But do you know how many people dispute over the simplest of things in life? They just have an argumentative spirit. If, if, listen, listen, somebody says something at work and, and you didn't agree with it. So you don't just let it pass. We're not talking about vital key truths of life, okay? We're talking about just things that don't really matter. You know, when did they win the Super Bowl? It was 1979. No, it wasn't. It was 81. What does it matter? Right? 
But, but we just, we've got to be right. We've got to be the one who is correct. See, that's a spirit of disputing. And the Apostle Paul said, listen, you don't want to be people who are known for being argumentative and disputing things all the time. Sometimes you just let it go. You just let it pass. You don't always have to be right. So here's the Apostle Paul saying, you want to be blameless and harmless sons of God without rebuke. See, you're living in a crooked and perverse nation. You are living in an ungodly nation. You are living in a surly nation. You are living in a twisted nation. You are living amongst people who are living in darkness. And you are the light to them. You are the only light they will ever see. And they need the word of God. So how do you conduct yourself in such a way that you are blameless and harmless and without rebuke? Don't be a griper. Don't be a grumbler. Don't be a complainer. And don't be argumentative. That's like a turnoff to the lost. They're not impressed with it. So think about this. I want us to think about people today. It's a very simple concept, all right? It's, it's a very simple concept. Think about people today. Who are we all created by? We are all created by God. Every one of us were manufactured from the same plant, so to speak. All of us were made and designed and created by God. As different as we may be on the outside, we were all designed, created, and made by God. We're all created sinners. Internally, we're all the same. You understand this? We're all sinners. From that comes two models, so to speak. You've got the saved and the unsaved. Now, if you look at the unsaved from a general perspective, from a stereotypical perspective, in our day-to-day, obviously much like Paul's day, we've still got the same issues plaguing us. We've got people who are ungodly. We've got people who are surly. They're not nice. They're not friendly. They're not enjoyable to be around. Yes, they know how to behave in public, but when you set them off, when you see them in private, when they don't have to really put their best foot forward, so to speak, you see just how unpleasant of a world we live in. We're living amongst a people whom I've already said is perverted in their thoughts that doesn't make sense, their logic, their reasoning, their mindset, it doesn't make sense. That is what the lost, or that is how the lost, approach life. And you know what is true so many times for the lost or the unsaved? If you were to put a saved person right beside them, more times than not, the average person couldn't tell a big difference. For so many reasons. The logic is the same. The mindset is the same. The reasoning is the same. The approach to life is the same. But more than that, you know what is so often the same? It's called the attitude. 
people who call themselves Christians, and you know what they can do as well as the lost people? They can gripe as well as the lost people can. Gripe about this. Gripe about that. Gripe, 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 gripe. Am I telling us the truth? You know everything that's wrong with everything, with everybody that you have to deal with. I've got all these people that I've got to deal with, and I've got all these situations that I've got to deal with, and it's gripe, 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 and there's not much discretion sometimes in the manner or to the people in which we gripe. Amen. You know what most saved people are pretty good at, as good as most lost people? Not just griping, but the grumbling. Sound like cavemen who haven't come into humanhood yet. We grumble. Grumble about this. We grumble about this. We grumble about this. We grumble about this. And we can complain with the best of them. It's too hot, it's too cold, it's too rainy, it's too dry, I'm too tired, I'm, I, I'm whatever it may be. Always, always finding something to complain about. My boss this, well my employees this, the government this, the economy this, this is that and that and that. It's constant complaining. And Christians can be as argumentative as anyone ever dreamed of being. We don't have to get excited about this, but I'm going to tell us this because we need to be reminded of this. We can be so argumentative. So here we are, we're the Christians, and we're going to work, and if we're not careful, what are we doing? We're griping, we're grumbling, we're complaining. Most generally to who? To lost people. We're disputing with who, most generally? Lost people. That's who our squabbles are with. So who at work are we griping and grumbling and complaining to? To lost people who are in darkness who desperately need to hear the word of God. Or we're griping and we're grumbling and we're complaining about things to lost family members. What are they griping and grumbling and complaining about? A multitude of things. Sometimes it's their job. Sometimes it's the government. Sometimes they're griping about their church to lost people. Now think about the, the, the intelligence of that one. Griping about their church to lost people. Griping about their pastor to lost people. People who are in darkness who need the light. And here sits a Christian ripping their church and their pastor to the lost people. Complaining. to lost people, disputing with lost people. It just goes on and on and on. And then we wonder why our nation is in the position it's in. Because at least to some degree, you know what the lost people can't tell that much of a difference between? Us and them. You know, you stack us side by side, you put us out there on a parking lot and you look at how you live and how I live and your attitude and my attitude and, and your spirit and my spirit and, you know, there's really not much of a difference. 
but you're telling me I need what you've got? No thanks, I'm good, I'm not interested. See, when we're not above reproach and we're able to be rebuked, when we try to then become light to the dark world that we're a part of, you know what people tend to do? They tend to kind of mock the idea that they need what we have, kind of like when the children of Lot mocked him whenever Lot decided to get all serious about God's judgment. So you and I, truth be told, we're really not impressing the lost because we're at church today. So we go to church tomorrow and we tell our co-workers, yeah, we were in church yesterday and you need to be in church. They don't care if you're the same gripey, grumbly, complaining person that they are. They don't care if you and I start our day with prayer, if you and I start our day with the Word of God, or that's how we choose to finish the day, if we're the same people who will argue about anything at the drop of a hat with anybody. You realize this? Part of our testimony has to do with whether or not we mumble or we murmur and we dispute like the rest of the world. Here's the thing. You and I ought to have a much better attitude and outlook than the lost world. We don't always need to be griping and grumbling and complaining and pointing out the flaws of everything. There ought to be within us, at times at least, we ought to strive for this, to have kind of like a positive attitude. I just don't see much to be positive about. Well, then you need to look harder. I'm just a realist. No, you're negative. You like to gripe, you like to grumble, you like to complain, and that's why you're able to see the negative in everything. And then you wonder why people don't take your witness and your testimony serious because you don't look any different to them than they know they are. Part of our testimony is getting along with people. We don't always have to be right. But I know I am. It doesn't matter. Learn to get along with people and just brush it off and just say, yeah, whatever. It doesn't matter if it's at work, if it's at home, if it's in this church. It doesn't matter where it's at. Learn to get along with people. That'll help the testimony a whole lot. Because when you're always griping and fussing with people, people begin to notice that and they begin to turn it off and just say, you know, I'm not real interested in what they've got. Paul said you're living in a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights. What they need is the word of God, but you've got to be above reproach. And part of being above reproach is having a different attitude than them. You know what so many of us need to just work on sometimes? Just smiling. Being pleasant and not looking mad. Honest. Uh, listen, sometimes I know I've said this before, and you say, hey, isn't it almost lunchtime? I'm not worried, okay? I've said this before. You know, sometimes driving down the road, you know what we need to think about? Our countenance. Somebody needs to wonder why we're smiling and not looking mad like everyone else. 
when we're going through the store, you know what would help immensely is if we had a pleasant look on our face where we didn't look so surly. Being friendly, being pleasant, being positive. It's cold outside today. Yeah, it is, but you know, it's kind of wintertime. We need to expect that. Oh, okay. Oh, it's windy. Uh-huh. It'll quit at some point. We don't know when, but it will. Prices keep rising. Yeah, but thank the Lord I've got money. You understand what I'm saying? Attitude. Until they see something different in us, they're not going to be real attracted to us. And I think sometimes we just need to look at our attitude, our spirit, our countenance, and ask ourselves, why would they be attracted to what I've got? If I'm negative, if I'm unfriendly in my appearance, if I look like I'm mad all the time, if I'm looking all sold up and sour, and if I'm argumentative, well, why would they want what I've got? We ought to think about it because it's part of our testimony. So I'll stand this morning and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, I come to you this morning. I pray that you'd help us to think about our attitude, about our spirit, about our griping, our mumbling, our complaining, just that murmuring, that disputing. Lord, so many times that undermines the testimony we're trying to have. We think somehow that we can gripe, grumble, and complain, and it's not going to affect what people think of us and our salvation. Lord, that's just not sound thinking if that's how we go through life. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to not leave here justifying it today, that that's just our attitude, that's just our spirit, that's just who we are. Lord, would you help us to realize that like anything else in life, we can change that if we want to with your help. I pray that you'd bless the invitation today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.